It is a great encouragement to be here with all you socially distanced people. So good to, to participate like this after being so many uh, weeks and even months apart. Uh, this is a great blessing to all of us, and I'm, in, I'm greatly encouraged by it. Um, if you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. Philippians 4 verses 1 through 9 is our focus. God's Word says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Iodia, I entreat Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. This is some of the um, most well-known scriptures um, in the Bible. To many, these are the favorite verses in the book uh, that we hold dear uh, for good reason. I mean, they're uplifting in content. They encourage us in our walk with Christ. They guide us in our Christian relationships. They motivate us to be like Jesus. These are some of my favorite verses. One of the reasons I chose to teach Philippians is so I could preach these verses to you. Uh, now, I'm going to have one sermon to do it, except I'm going to take a couple more uh, to fill out the entire section here. But uh, this is this is such important information that the Apostle Paul gives us in these few verses that has to do with practical Christian living. I don't know of any more practical section of Scripture than this. So I, I pray that, that your hearts are prepared. I've been praying all week that God would prepare you to hear these things, and not just to hear them, but to take them and apply them. I mean, who doesn't want to be uh, more happy? It says rejoice all, always. Uh, who doesn't want to be known as a reasonable person? None of us want to be anxious. We all want to pray more. Uh, we all want to be more thankful. We all want to have more of God's peace, don't we? This is what we want. What Paul is saying, what he's describing here is what we, in fact, want. But I believe that these verses are more than just a list of Christian virtues to pursue and desire. Look, look at where these verses fall in this letter that we've been studying. 
they fall on the tail of Paul's exhortation to two fighting women. These virtues are actually ways which we can develop meaningful and harmonious Christian relationships. Not just at church, but in our homes. These verses that I just read for you are God's method, God's strategy to develop meaningful and harmonious relationships in church and home. I hope you'll pay attention because if you're like me, you struggle with relationships from time to time. These particular verses, the truths found herein, are essential to standing firm as gospel partners, which has been the point of this entire letter. In verses 2 and 3, I'm going to remind you of what I said last week. In verses 2 and 3, Paul identifies these two women who couldn't seem to get along. Uh, and then as I mentioned last week, these two were probably there at the beginning with Lydia and the jailer when Paul and Silas planted this church in Philippi. You remember in Acts 16. Um, but Paul loved this church. Paul loved these people. And he desired the best for them. He desired God's best for them. And he knew that, that if there was ongoing infighting, selfishness, it always has lethal effects on churches and Christians in those churches. And so Paul wants to address this thing that's so dangerous in the body of Christ, so dismantling for the Christian life. Um, if we're going to have... Uh, Joyful, gospel-centered, gospel-partner Christians at Sun Valley Church, we need to hear this message. We need to apply this message. We need to embrace it personally. This, this is what the Holy Spirit is after here this morning. This is what Paul was after when he wrote these words. Paul here is basically tying together all of his thoughts from this letter here at the beginning of chapter 4 as a way of concluding this letter. Um, he, he's focused this whole letter on standing firm as joyful gospel partners. And along the way, he has made references throughout of the importance of God-honoring, Christ-imitating relationships. Now here, finally, in chapter 4, he gets down to the nitty-gritty. Gets down to what many think is the, the reason he sent this letter back to Philippi with Epaphroditus. He, he names names. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of Iodia and Syntyche just for a second. Can you imagine being one of these two ladies sitting there on that Sunday morning church gathering, having Epaphroditus just returned from Rome, having visited the Apostle Paul and delivering a letter to this church specifically, and you're sitting there for the first time on Sunday listening to Paul read this, I mean, listening to Epaphroditus read this letter from Paul. You're Yodia, you're, you're Syntyche. By the end of chapter 1, uh, you would have quite a bit to think about. Uh, by the time you got to the end of chapter 2, you would be sure that Paul was referring to you. And then in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, Paul does the unthinkable, and he names you. And he says this, Stop it. How would you like that? I mean, you may, you may have shudders run up and bat down your spine thinking that we might put your name on the overhead next week. Uh, 
this has been recorded <laughs> since Paul wrote it for church history that will last into eternity. So here's Paul's logic in the matter. In order to be joyful gospel partners, which is the objective of this letter, we must stand firm in the faith. In order to stand firm in the faith, we must have meaningful and harmonious Christian relationships. Do you want to find yourself on the end of your life having walked faithfully with Christ, having stood firm throughout the years in your relationship with God and his people? Then you must, be, have, you must have been a joyful gospel partner, and that is dependent upon have had, have had meaningful and harmonious Christian relationships. There's no other way to get to that place. So here in the first nine verses of chapter 4, Paul gives five ways in concluding this letter, five ways to strengthen meaningful and harmonious Christian relationships. First, and I'm going to cover the first three today and the next two next week. First, always be joyful. Second, be reasonable. Third, don't be anxious. Fourth, think correctly. And fifth, practice being a Christian. So we're going to look at the first three today. The first is this. Rejoice always. Rejoice always. We have an amazing God, don't we? I mean, we sing about him and to him and to each other about him every single week. Our, our private worship times are full of thoughts on this awesome God that we serve, our creator of the universe who, who loves us and came himself to die for us. This verse here, verse 4 in Philippians chapter 4, reveals a great deal about the character of this God that we love. He's commanding us to be happy. He's commanding us to be joyful. What does that tell you about the character of God? He's saying, my subjects will be happy. He's, he's focusing on our joy, which is the focus of the Christian life. This, this gives us great insight into the character of our God, our Creator. If God wants joyful Christians, He must be a joyful, personal God. Did you hear that? If God wants you and I to be joyful, He must be joyful. And not just be joyful, but be personal and interested in me and you particularly. Rejoice always here in verse 4 is not a suggestion. It's a command. It is a command. The question, though, that it follows on commands like this is, is it possible to always rejoice? I mean, aren't there times when it's okay not to rejoice? Paul says rejoice always. God says rejoice always. Is it a sin not to be joyful? Well, is it a sin not to obey a command? Well, what if my circumstances are so much so that I have nothing to rejoice over? What if my relationships are falling apart? What if I've lost my job? What if my health is failing? Is it okay not to rejoice then? God, can I, can I get a break? Can I get some slack? What's the command? Rejoice always. 
wait a minute. <laughs> this word in the original language is a present active imperative. In other words, it's imperative that you do this all the time. It needs to be a continual, habitual practice of rejoicing. And you're sitting there thinking, this has got to be hyperbole. Come on. I mean, even in Paul's day, it had to be hard. I mean, look at us. We're sitting here outside with face masks on, six feet apart, having been completely blown out of the water for the past six months. And you want me to be happy. Well, remember that Paul's command here has an important phrase. Look at your Bibles. In the Lord. <laughs> Rejoice in the Lord. I could talk about that for a few sermons, but I'm going to spare you. Rejoice in the Lord, he says, not in the weather. Rejoice in the Lord, not in your finances, not your health, not your home, not in the fact that we can gather, not in your portfolio's well-being. And by the way, that doesn't mean we shouldn't rejoice in those things. Rejoicing is part of thanksgiving. Are you thankful for your health, your job, your this gathering? Yes, that's part of thanksgiving. What Paul is saying, what the Holy Spirit is saying, that these things simply shouldn't be the source of our joy. How do we always rejoice? I'm going to tell you. I hope you're a note taker or you have a good memory or both. The key to rejoicing always, the key to rejoicing always is an understanding of the relationship between thinking, willing, and feeling. The, the key to rejoicing always is in understanding the relationship between thinking, willing, and feeling. First of all, I think you would agree if you're a Christian that our thinking is supposed to be governed by, informed by, and shaped by, fill in the blank, the Word of God. Right? Our thinking is supposed to be, must be, governed by, informed by, and shaped by God's Word. We, we have the mind of Christ here in front of us. It's called the Scriptures. And so we are to conform our thinking to biblical revelation, to God's thoughts. We are to think His thoughts. And we do this by saturating our minds with His mind, which is this Word. Paul told the Romans in chapter 12 that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And how does that happen? He goes on the rest of chapter 12 to explain it's by the word of God. So the first way in which we must rejoice, or the key to rejoicing always, is an understanding relationship between thinking, willing, and feeling. And first, our thinking is supposed to be shaped by, governed by, informed by the word of God. Secondly, when our minds are filled with biblical, with biblical thoughts, our minds are filled with God's thoughts, it affects our will. All right? Since my actions are the product of my thinking, my actions are the product of my thinking, I know I'm thinking correctly when my conduct is in line with Scripture. Test, is your conduct in line with Scripture? If it is, 
then you are thinking God's thoughts. Your, your mind is being shaped by God's word. If your actions are not, if your conduct is not in line with scripture, then your mind, your thinking has not been shaped by God's word because your conduct is always a result of your thinking. Now follow me here. The, the problem or many, one of the main problems in the church, in my opinion, is that many Christians aren't saturated by the word of God, but instead are saturated by the world and hence think and act like the world would. The reason Paul is so interested in our thinking is that he knows that, in, that everything about the Christian life begins in the mind. If our thinking is controlled by Scripture, it affects everything in the Christian life. When we fully understand the will of God revealed in Scripture, when we understand what is right and good, which revealed in Scripture, along with the Holy Spirit's help, we will be able to submit our will to what is right and good. Our feelings will then follow suit. Our feelings and emotions are not detached from our thinking and our willing. In other words, our feelings and emotions are not separated from our thinking and doing, but are constrained and guided by them. Did you hear that? Our feelings and emotions are not separated from our thinking and doing, but are constrained and guided by them. This is why you must wash your mind regularly with the Word of God. Constantly be informed by it, shaped by it, influenced by it. If you want a chance at being joyful always, as God is, God is always joyful. If you want a chance at obeying this command, if you want a chance at always being joyful, your mind must be saturated with the mind of God. The truths of Scripture will give you reason for joy always. It's like the extreme rock climbers. If you were to ask them if they were afraid on the face of that sheer cliff 500 feet above the ground, they would say, yes, of course. But those were just feelings. When I'm on that sheer cliff, I'm controlled by my mind, which controls my actions, my grips, my body shape and movements, not by my fear, not by my feeling. They would say, if I let fear control me, it ends badly. So their mind controls their actions. Their fear does not control their actions. Here's the problem. Our sin, your sin, my sin, has turned everything on its head. Instead of being controlled by our thinking, we allow our feelings to control us. Because of this, it, it's only possible to rejoice when we're feeling good about our circumstances. I hope you're following me. This is critical to your joy. Only when things are going my way am I able to be joyful and happy if I allow my feelings to control my life. Otherwise, I'm sullen, depressed, even physically sick at times. This is why people struggle with depression, anxiety, guilt. The only time we're feeling it or loving life is when we get a raise, our boss tells us we're doing great, our spouse is conforming to our wishes, or our sports teams win. If anything else happens... I'm depressed. This is a horrible day. External things have filled our reservoir and control our emotions instead of God's word filling our reservoir 
and controlling our emotions. So what do we do when things aren't going our way? When your marriage is on the rocks, your kids are out of control, your relationships with your boss is toxic, is it possible to rejoice then? Well, not if you start from your feelings. Certainly not. If you start, though, at the truths about God and his love and care for us and commitment to our sanctification and joy, then it is completely possible and, in fact, inevitable. I'm going to give you an illustration from Scripture. You remember Habakkuk, Old Testament prophet. He was a prophet just prior to and during the Assyrian siege of Israel. He said this in Habakkuk 3, verses 16 through 18. I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. Okay, he sounds serious, doesn't it? He says this, continuing, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine, the produce of the olive fail, and the, ye and the fields yield no food, the flocks be cut off from the fold, and there is no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. <laughs> Even though Habakkuk was terribly vexed in spirit to the point of potential despair, and by the way, he had every reason to be, the Assyrians were notorious for brutal treatment of their captives. I mean, brutal. Even though all this was true and ultimately did happen, Habakkuk set his thoughts on God and God's character. His feelings didn't control his joy. God and his character controlled his joy. He thought biblically. And it affected his actions. It affected his feelings. This is how you and I can be joyful always. This is the godly strategy for being joyful in the midst of deep trial or depressing circumstances. This is why Job could say, though he slay me, I will hope in him. We can do the same. We can face the worst and still say, I am going to hope in a faithful God who has never failed one of his people. When Paul says rejoice always, he is commanding a deep down confidence that God is in control of all of my circumstances that will result in my good and his glory. That's all he is asking us to do, commanding us to do. Just have confidence that God is at work, that God is in control of your circumstances, and he has a point. What a wonderful reality this is for us, friends. To know that God has orchestrated all the events of our life to produce Christ-likeness in me, to bring about my joy and his glory, what a tremendous thought. The way this works to strengthen harmonious, meaningful relationships is to remember that God primarily works in you and me through relationships, human relationships. That's how he conforms us to the image of Christ, Primarily, relational struggles are designed by God to bring about Christ-likeness, hence marriage. That was so supposed to be kind of funny, but 
your marriage is designed by God to bring you trouble. Is it working? I, I wouldn't say that at a singles retreat. Maybe I would. I probably would, actually. <laughs> you see, souring relationships motivate us to hope and depend on God as we should. Instead of on people. Being unfairly treated helps us relate to the sufferings of Christ. Navigating relationships harmoniously is one of the most important things in life. Additionally, no one wants to be around a complainer. No one wants to be around a grouch. And it might be a revelation to you to ask those in your life how people perceive you in this matter. But back in verse 1, he says to agree in the Lord. Here in verse 4, he says rejoice in the Lord. These two things have a lot of overlap. Our Christian relationships are on solid footing because, you hear me, our Christian relationships are on solid footing because each and every believer is saved by grace. We can get along primarily because we're saved by grace. We get into the family of God in only one way, the grace of God in Christ received by faith. Have you received the grace of God in Christ by faith? Have you done that yet? Have you acknowledged your sin? Have you come by faith to trust in the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary for you? If so, you're saved by grace like every other Christian. No one gets in by merit. Everybody only gets in by grace in, through the faith in God's goodness. What does this do? If we all come into the family of God in only one way, what does this do? It eliminates pride. You and I can't talk about what we accomplish to attain our Christian status. No, it eliminates pride. It eliminates envy. Oh, I wish I could have done that to get in. That, no. It eliminates pride, envy, boasting, jealousy, and arrogance. All problems for relationships. Right? Coming into the family of God by faith through, through the grace of God eliminates 99% of human problems. We're all on the same level. It frees us from basing our identity on what others think about us or even what we think of ourselves, but only on what God thinks about us. It levels the playing field in the church. Christians have a solid ground to stand on in terms of relating to one another. We are not better than each other in any way. Our sense of worth doesn't come from the approval of others in the room or from being better than others in the room. Being a Christian means that we are united to Christ and to each other. We're in the Lord. Being saved by grace humbles us but assures us that we are loved. There is no inferiority or superiority in the church. We are completely free to humbly serve, humbly affirm, humbly build up, humbly confront others, or humbly do whatever is needed in each other's lives. Why? Because we're all saved by grace. <laughs> Be joyful always. Second thing here that has a dramatic effect on a joyful gospel relationships um, is found in the next verse. Look at verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. 
The word reasonableness is hard to translate. <clears throat> in fact, uh, that's why it's translated differently in almost every single translation uh, that you have. But it means basically this, yield to one another. Yield to one another. Be pliable. Be quick to give up your rights. Grant mercy towards others in their failures. Be gentle towards one another. That's wrapped up in this word that's translated in the ESV, reasonable. Paul said something similar to the Ephesian believers. He said this in chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is a verse we've all memorized that we teach our children to remember um, and ask them to read over and over again in sibling confrontation. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Why can you forgive someone? Why can you be reasonable? Why can you be quick to yield? It's because God treated you that way. God forgave you your sin. It's easy to see how this quality goes a long way towards unity and harmony in relationships in the church, isn't it? Be reasonable. Be quick to, get, be quick to give up your rights. Even if you're right, give it up. Can you imagine if you just apply this quality to any relationship you had, what would happen? I'm pretty sure it would dramatically improve your relationship. The reason we should yield to others and grant them mercy is because, why? What's it say at the end of that verse there? The Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. What does this mean? Well, it can mean two possible things. One, the Lord is near like he's in the room, and the other is near. He might be coming back soon. Either way, it's influential, isn't it? Yes, he is near to us. The Lord knows our motives. He knows how we talk about one another when the other is not in the room because he is in the room. The Lord is near, but he's also near in the sense that he's very close to returning. Do we want to be acting like this when he returns? I think Paul wanted us to think about these things as he wrote them. He wants us to remember Jesus. He's at hand. The one who yielded his rights, his position, for the sake of others is returning soon. In fact, he's near. He's here now. Reading your thoughts, listening to your conversations. Everyone should be able to plainly see the reasonableness of gospel partners. The quickness to which we yield our rights. We should be known to everyone in the church and everyone in the community as easy to get along with. Friends, most things aren't all that important, are they? Most things aren't worth drawing a line in the sand over. Very few things should raise our blood pressure. But just to be clear, Paul isn't talking about doctrine He's not saying, well, just accept anybody's doctrine. No, it doesn't really matter as long as they love Jesus. No, he's not talking about doctrine. He's not saying we should compromise our doctrinal stances. He's been clear on that just a few verses before this at the end of Philippians chapter 3. And he isn't talking about compromising our morals either, even in the church or in the world. Paul isn't saying, listen, there are many people who are sexually promiscuous, so don't make a big deal about it. No. Paul's already addressed the importance of sound doctrine. He's already impressed the importance of morality in this book, in this letter. 
What he is saying is that those of us who are Christians should demonstrate an attitude of flexibility with anybody who differs on us, differs with us on unimportant issues. We shouldn't make a big deal about small things. We shouldn't demand our way regarding where the thermostat is set. We shouldn't argue about petty things. Even when somebody is obviously wrong, Paul is saying be patient and reasonable, reasonable with one another. Doesn't that get you when you know you're right and you know they're wrong and they won't yield? Eh. Paul says be the first to yield. Be quick to the yielding. The first to yield wins is a way to think about it. If you're committed to God's revealed will in the Word, you can yield your will. No matter how right you are to someone else, because you serve a faithful God who is in the business of transforming you into the likeness of Jesus. Did Jesus yield all the time? Remember his conversation with Pilate? Did he yield? Oh my word, he yielded. His whole life was yielding. Paul says, be like Jesus. Be reasonable. Be quick to yield. Trusting God's wisdom, commands, and promises gives you the freedom to yield your rights and remain joyful. You know God will eventually right all wrongs. You know that even in unfair treatment, you will experience God's blessing. So yield. Reasonable people are joyful people. Joyful people are reasonable people. If you encounter an unhappy grouch, don't expect them to be reasonable. If a person is argumentative, they're going to struggle with being content and joyful. And finally, let's look at the next verse. Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Oh, to be able to do that to worry less and pray more and be thankful more. You know, even though we're familiar with the promises and truths of God's care about us, we regularly forget these things, don't we? Especially when things get tough, when trials come, these things are the first out the door. Does it take much to get you anxious? Well, (laughs) our confidence wanes when things happen, our spiritual stability wavers, we lose sight of God, we lose our joy. Every Christian, I think, experiences this struggle. David, King David, uh, was a man of faith, a man after God's own heart, and yet he was constantly struggling to see God in his circumstances. Read the Psalms of David. This was his struggle. But he usually, by the end of his Psalms, came around to remembering the loving kindness of God towards him. Friends, The one precious doctrine that King David remembered, that Paul remembered, that Paul wants you and I to remember, that allows you to not be anxious, is this beautiful doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Have you thought on these things? The sovereignty of God, nothing is outside of God's control, nothing is too difficult for him, nothing is too small for him, nothing's too big for him, nothing surprises him. He knows what is best and he can accomplish it. 
combine the sovereignty of God with his love and his wisdom, and you and I have an unshakable foundation, not only to avoid anxiety, but to gain joy. In the Sermon on the Mount, which you heard a portion of it read earlier by Jesse, Jesus addressed our anxiety. Did you hear it? Are you worried about what you're going to wear? Really? You see that bird over there? God clothes him. God, God takes care of that bird. He doesn't have a worry in the world. Don't be a bird brain. Or maybe you should be a bird brain. Don't have a worry in the world. If we embrace God, if we embrace his sovereignty, if we embrace his loving control over everything, it will go a long way to improving our relationships. Do you think anything comes out of your spouse's mouth without God knowing it? God told David that before he said a word, God knew what was, what was on his mind. Psalm 139. Before David uttered a word, God knew it was on his mind. Not only does God know it, he orchestrates it. Why? For your joy and his glory. In his sovereignty, God oversees relationships. We easily get worked up about different aspects of our relationships with one another, don't we? Do you get easily worked up in relationships? We worry about many petty things that undermine harmonious relationships. We assume things that aren't true. We create scenarios that don't exist. We worry about things others think about us when they don't think about you. Uh, if we could dismiss anxiety from our minds, our relationships would improve immediately. If you sat down and wrote down all the things that you've been anxious about this past week, how long would that list be? Have you been anxious about your kids? Have you been anxious about your job, your schooling, your health, your weight, your looks, your finances, your home, your job, your relationships? It would probably be a long list, wouldn't it? But here Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. This is just as difficult as the command to always be happy, isn't it? So what are we to replace anxiety with? If anxiety takes up so much of, our, of the space in our life, if we remove it, there's a big vacuum there. What do we replace it with? What's the verse say? Prayer and thanksgiving. That's what you replace it with. So the things that would bring you anxiety, pray about them. The things that would cause you to be anxious, thank God for them. So you see, God has orchestrated your life to conform you to the image of Jesus. What you are going through right now is personally designed by God for you. It is your personal sanctification plan. Thank God for your circumstances. Ask him to guide you through them. Pray for all those connected to your circumstances, that God will be working in them as well and through you to encourage them. Instead of being anxious about your problems, give thanks for them. When the peace of God is waiting on the other end of that, 
it's motivating. Paul says this in verse 7, after he just said, don't be anxious, but pray with thanksgiving, he says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's what's on the other end of this. This trial of, of anxiety, this trial of joylessness, the, the, the carrot on the other end is peace, the peace of God. Friends, every Christian desires the peace with God or peace of God. We all want to navigate life's trial with a sense of peace. This is one of the grand elusive virtues, isn't it? Not just peace, but God's peace. And if there's anyone who is at peace, it's the one who controls everything and always gets his way. Isn't that why you're not at peace? It's because you can't control anything or never get your way? You see, what does Paul promise the peace of God will bring here? First of all, it guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? The peace of God will be a fortress around your mind against anxiety. The peace of God will be a fortress around your heart and mind against disunity. The peace of God will be a fortress around your heart and mind against the, any foe that would steal your joy. That's what the peace of God brings. And it's just on the other side of your anxiousness, just on the other side of your joylessness. Push through those things. Believe God. Have your mind saturated with the Word of God so Paul wraps up these short four verses here by adding all these things together to arrive at the peace of God. Be joyful always. Be reasonable. Don't be anxious. All three of these are contingent on your grasp of God's character. It's important to remember the strategy that I mentioned earlier that I laid out for always being joyful. It's the same strategy for not worrying about anything. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not. It's not easy. It's, it, I'm just saying that it's the same strategy. And I'll remind you of it right now. Remember the relationship between thinking, willing, and feeling. If you think the right way, you'll do the right things. If you think and do the right things, you will always fall into a God-glorifying place called joy. So how do you rejoice always? You saturate your mind with the truths of God's God and his word, you trust God and obey him, then, you, then this joy thing, this elusive virtue will follow. How can you yield your rights? How can you avoid anxiety? By using the same strategy. Saturate your mind with the truths of God's word, trust and obey God, joy will come, reasonableness will come, anxiety will flee. So saturate your mind with the word of God that says we have an all-powerful, all-loving, all-kind, perfectly wise God who orchestrates all the circumstances of our lives for our good and his glory. These are wonderful verses, aren't they? Let's thank God for them. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for this edifying text here in the letter to the Philippians from Paul. Thank you for using the Apostle Paul to address such important issues in our lives that we encounter on a daily basis. God bless us as we pursue um, habitual joy. Encourage us as we endeavor to be reasonable and quick to yield. Help us as we do our best to avoid anxiety through prayer and thanksgiving. 
Bring us the peace that you've promised in these things. Oh God, what a, what a Savior we have, what a God we have who cares about the details of our lives. We, we praise you. We lift up your name. Go with us now as we take these truths that you have stamped on our hearts and minds this morning and apply them throughout the week. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.